Hello, and welcome to Notes from the Conservatory, a podcast from the Bob Cole Conservatory of Music at California State University, Long Beach. I'm your host, Richard Cooper. This podcast is a chronicle of conversations and interviews with our faculty, students, and guest artists. Today, we start a new series of interviews that I'm calling Stranded. This is my version of something that started on the BBC radio in 1942 as a show called Desert Island Discs. A guest is asked to choose several recordings that they would take if they were to be cast away on a desert island and discuss the music and their careers. My first castaway is Dr. Elizabeth Lindau. Dr. Lindau is a musicologist who earned her PhD and MA in Critical and Comparative Studies in Music from the University of Virginia and her bachelor's degree in Piano Performance and Pedagogy from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Dr. Lindau writes about popular music in the avant-garde. She has had many articles published, writing about artists like John Cage, Sonic Youth, Yoko Ono, David Byrne, Brian Eno, The Velvet Underground, and Andy Warhol. She regularly presents at conferences, including Feminist Theory in Music, the Annual Meeting of the American Musicological Society, and the International Association for the Study of Popular Music. I started by asking her about where she's from. I am from the city of Wayne, Nebraska. It's a town, actually. It's very small. I think a little over 5,000 people as of the last census. Um, So I grew up in a small rural town. It was a college town. 5,000 is a sizable town in Nebraska. (laughs) It's the county seat and one of the state colleges is there. So actually, I grew up with a lot of exposure to interesting music when I was I don't know, probably 13. One of the college faculty put on a festival of the music of Charles Ives. So I learned all about Charles Ives as a pretty young person. I was a pianist before I became a musicologist. And my piano teacher was a faculty member at the college in my hometown. And she was a great new music enthusiast. So that is part of where my research interests uh, come from. And how did you come to Cal State Long Beach? What was the path that led you here? (laughs) I finished my PhD at the University of Virginia in 2012, um, and I had a series of visiting assistant professorships after that. So I taught at Gettysburg College in Pennsylvania for one year. I taught at Wesleyan University in Connecticut for a year. And then I taught for two years at Earlham College, which is a small Quaker institution in eastern Indiana, in Richmond, Indiana. And then I finally got a tenure track offer here. What were you teaching in those places? At Gettysburg, I taught popular music uh, survey, which I teach a version of that here. I also taught a class, a kind of core class for their music majors that was called cross-cultural elements and contexts of music, which is a little bit of a handful, but it was actually a really cool class. It was sort of an introduction to musicology and ethnomusicology for undergraduates. And I also taught world music. (laughs) It's on the books at a lot of places, and it's a really challenging course because, you know, who can kind of sum up all of the folk and classical and popular musics of the world in one semester, but I tried. And then I also, uh, I got to teach a seminar there on my research area which was called uh, Musical Avant-Gardes. So I taught a variety of classes there. Um, actually, at both Wesleyan and Earlham, I was hired to teach primarily music theory, um, which I like doing very much. Um, and then I taught some musicology classes as well. Liking Southern California? I like it very much. Yeah? You think you're going to stay? 
I hope so if they keep me around. Yeah, I, I like it more than I expected to like it. <laughs> I kind of imagined it as freeways and strip malls, but actually Long Beach feels kind of not unlike living in a small town. I feel like I have access to a large city and all that that affords, but it also feels um, kind of easy to get around in and intimate, and so I like it a lot. Tell me about what you do here at Cal State Long Beach at the BCCM. <laughs> I teach a large gen ed course that's called Popular Music in the United States. I usually teach that in the fall, and I'll have between two sections as many as 200 students, maybe a little bit more. What do you cover um, in that? That class starts with 19th century popular music, which um, I and most pop music scholars consider to be the sort of origin of American popular music. So basically, very simply, pop music is defined here as anything that is put together for a mass audience. So the 19th century sees the beginning of sheet music publication. So we start with Stephen Foster. We also do a class on blackface minstrelsy. And then I move into early recording. We talk about the blues and hillbilly music and race records on through the rock and roll era. And then usually we get through the 1980s and MTV. And then I've been kind of switching up my final classes. So sometimes I'll do a class on televised singing contests like American. American Idol and The Voice, and that's uh, where we end. Of course, the recent history is always in flux, so that changes, but I do try to get up to the present. And then what else do you teach here? I teach a class called Research Methods, which is a required class for all of our graduate students. So it's kind of library boot camp, which I think is really fun. So it's about how, uh, the kind of craft of research and uh, writing and rhetoric and how to develop an original project and add something new to the literature about music, which is what all of our grad students do before they exit with their master's degrees. You were teaching a class this last semester on, what was it called? Oh, I taught a graduate seminar that was about music and decadence. Basically, we spent the entire semester trying to figure out what decadence means. It's um, not a concept that's very well theorized within music, although there are a couple of recent really good books. But decadence was a literary movement in France in the late 19th century, and many of its proponents, including people like Baudelaire, were interested in music, particularly the music of Wagner. So we looked at intersections between literature and music, Mallarmé's poem, The Afternoon of a Fawn, and listened to Debussy's sort of musical reinterpretation of it. We looked at kind of literary decadence and then also the idea of decadence as a kind of period of decline or of decay, the sort of demise of a great society. So we looked at a number of times and places that are thought of as decadent. Turn of the century Vienna, uh, Weimar Berlin, and then we concluded the class by looking at a couple of popular music reinterpretations of decadence. At one point of the semester, we'd done uh, Brecht and Weil, Rise and Fall of the City of Mahagoni. At the end of the semester, we did David Bowie's uh, Rise and Fall of City Stardust and the Spiders for Mars. We also looked at Lou Reed's album, Berlin, kind of in conjunction with our earlier discussions of Berlin in the earlier in the semester. And then also his reinterpretation of a kind of classic decadent novel from the 19th century, Venus and Furs. So it was uh, kind of about decadent places and then also about uh, literary decadence and how that intersects with music. Wow, that sounds like a fun class. <laughs> Before we jump into the music, tell me about your musical heroes. 
Who do you who do you love? Oh, my musical heroes. Well, you and I both love Brian Eno quite a lot. You wrote an article for a book on Brian Eno. I did. Yeah, that particular piece is about uh, my life in the Bush of Ghosts. But actually, I'm working on some other writing about Brian Eno that is going to be about his lyrics, which nobody talks about. I mean, we all know him as like the father of ambient music and as a whiz with a synthesizer and all of that. But I also think his lyrics are quite interesting and have some inspiration from older historical avant-garde practices like automatic writing um, or cut-up technique. So I'm looking at that. Other heroes... um, Yoko Ono. I think Yoko Ono is a genius. I don't always love her work. I love a lot of it. I mean, she's just a sort of consummate artist. You know, she's such a wonderful visual artist and poet. To call her just a musician is not to kind of capture all that she does. But I think most of the people that I write about are are kind of musical heroes. I don't spend time writing about anyone that I don't find really interesting or whose music I don't love listening to. So, Okay, so let's talk about your Desert Island selections <laughs> here. May I say something about the rationalization of these choices? Oh, please May do, I? yes. All right. Again, the challenge was you're trapped on a desert island with three works. And I'm imagining that this is a Tom Hanks castaway, not Gilligan's Island scenario. So I was imagining being alone with no idea that I would ever speak to anyone again. So that is how I chose these things. So these aren't necessarily like my three favorite pieces of music in the world. They're things that I thought would serve me well if I were on a desert island. <laughs> Length was one major consideration. And I knew you didn't want this to be a series of interviews about the longest pieces that people could find, but I do think that it's a consideration. It's that jukebox thing where I got to get the most out of my quarter so I'm gonna play that Frampton talkbox solo song you know if, you know that you're gonna play something that you know is really long you don't just want to take three Ramon songs no I would prefer the Ramones over Frampton any I mean nothing yeah. against Peter Frampton but I think that length is a major consideration so I have chosen with one slight exception I've chosen things that are long mm-hmm. also I was really mixed about human voices about rather whether I would want to hear human voices I have picked a ring cycle <laughs> Um, but the ring is not very many human beings. It's like Nibelungen and dragons and all kinds of other sort of beings. So it's kind of fantastic. And the other things that I've chosen are instrumental. And then the other thing that I was thinking about is that I actually didn't want anything that would remind me too much of my old life. So I didn't want anything that I listened to a lot before I got stranded on this desert island. You know, would I really want to listen to things that you know, I used to play in my living room? So I actually didn't pick any of those things. So, yeah, so we can start with Wagner. I mean, this is all music that I really like. I didn't pick bad music, but this isn't like the three pieces that I listen to the most. So why this particular version of the ring? This is known to classical record collectors as the Deca ring. Um, This is probably still the greatest achievement in the history of recorded classical music. It is the first complete recording of the ring that was done over a number of years. And it was actually made possible by the LP. Typical performance of the ring can be 15 hours long. Um, And if you're working with 78s, which is the sort of precursor to the LP, you would be getting up 100 times just in Das Rheingold to flip the record. So it's the first ring. Um, I would also argue that it's still the best. It's kind of a dream cast 
with uh, Birgit Nielsen as Brunhilde and a kind of aging Kirsten Flagstad is in it. It's all these amazing singers. It's Schulte conducting, who's one of the great Wagner conductors. And then another kind of less familiar name that is behind this recording is John Culshaw who was a major figure at DECA, who was the producer. He organized this amazing cast of people and oversaw this project, which um, spanned a number of years. Kulshaw is really interesting to read. He made wonderful recordings, and his sort of philosophy of making recordings is really fascinating. You know, to listen to an opera on record is sort of a weird thing to do because we think of operas as being staged and that there's a visual spectacle and recordings kind of remove opera from that audiovisual complex. So you're just hearing the sounds of the opera. You're not seeing anything. But Colshaw didn't think that this was a detriment. He actually thought this was an advantage of recordings because that recordings could help you create this, uh, what he called a theater of the mind, so that basically you could imagine your own staging of Wagner's Ring rather than having someone else's staging imposed on you. It also enabled him to do stereo. And when you listen to this particular ring cycle, it's like you can hear characters or armies, you know, kind of coming in from different parts of the stage. It's almost like being in the theater, only better. It's a better seat than you would ever have if you went to Bayreuth. I also have a live ring that was done at Bayreuth, and it's really cool, but it doesn't sound the same as the Schulte ring. Well, one part is just the opening of the ring, which I think would be great desert island music because it evokes water. It's this very long E-flat passage, maybe the most famous E-flat pedal in all of music, that sort of evokes the Rhine. And then you get into this scene with the Rhine maidens kind of uh, frolicking in the water that I think would be really great if you were trapped on a desert island. The other passage, if you want to hear what made Kulshaw great, in Gutter Dummerung, there's a scene where Hagen is summoning his minions to come to him. And in Wagner's score, uh, Wagner indicated that he's supposed to summon them with a steer horn. And almost everyone just uses a trombone. But Kulshaw didn't like that. He wanted to know what Wagner meant by steer horn. This just shows his attention to detail with this recording. He talked to Wagner's grandsons, who were both theater directors at Bayreuth around the time this recording was being made. And they said, oh, just use a trombone. And uh, he said, no, 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 I want to figure out what he meant by steerhorn. So he found this instrument maker at Bayreuth by the name of Otto Mahler. I don't think any relationship to Gustav Mahler, but Otto Mahler said, oh, yeah, I remember those. They were carried away by American troops after the war when apparently they turned Bayreuth into a vaudeville stage for a while. So, oh, yeah, I remember those. I think I can make you some. So they paid to have this man manufacture steerhorns, which were then uh, kind of placed in a separate booth during the recording and also they're supposed to be coming from over the countryside so you hear them in the different channels and they do sound different from a trombone. The other thing about this recording, this was made in the structure that used to be a steam bath, Sophienzale. The whole recording is made in this particularly resonant structure that much like Valhalla in the ring burned down and then was rebuilt again. I have one other thing to say about Wagner. I actually think that a desert island would be the perfect place to listen to Wagner because you can listen to it without all the baggage that comes with Wagner. <laughs> um, his sort of notorious anti-Semitism and also where a lot of his ideas led in the 20th century. I think if you were on a desert island, you would never interact with anyone again and you were sort of removed from 
history and culture, actually, it would be a wonderful place to listen to Wagner because it might be possible to sort of shed that, which I can never quite do when I listen to Wagner. You know, I judge myself a little bit. I don't find it possible to just purely enjoy Wagner. That brings us to the separating the art from the artist. Not just from him, but also how the music was used. The idea of Wagner and his whole aesthetic was used for great ill. There's a whole debate going on now in musicology about operas that have essentially rape scenes in them. No one's saying, like, you can never do Don Giovanni again, but I think yeah. having some awareness of problems with it is a different thing. It's not like, okay, we're never listening to that. Or there are some people who are like, I can't enjoy that music at all. And hey, I understand that. Yeah. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, I happen to like the music well enough. I also just, I mean, I love recordings a lot, and this is an incredible recording. I worked my way through college at a classical record store and it was always like a triumph when you could sell someone a Decca ring because it was like $200 and it was like getting someone to sink that money in. All right, well, what's the next one? You it's have Lamont Young. the uh, well-tuned piano. Tell me why the well-tuned piano. Again, it is long. It's an improvisation by Lamont Young that was recorded in 1981. So there's one recording that he did on Gramavision Records that is now almost impossible to get. I've been watching for it for years. I looked before we uh, started talking and I think it's almost $500. There's one for sale on Amazon. But uh, when I was in graduate school at the University of Virginia, our library owned a copy. And so I've listened to it in stages, but I've actually never gotten to kind of sit and listen to the whole thing through. How, um, so how long is the whole thing? It's only five or six hours, but it's one five or six hour long piece, which is a little bit different than Wagner, which is long, but it's also four different operas and you can kind of take breaks. And uh, so if I were on a desert island, I would finally have six hours free to uh, listen to the well-tuned piano from start to finish without stopping. The well-tuned piano is an improvisation for a specially tuned piano uh, that uses a scale that uh, Lamont Young devised, and it is a scale that favors just intervals or sort of pure intervals, so it's not a tempered scale. So obviously this is a nod to Bach's well-tempered clavier. The tuning of the piece is quite beautiful. The piece is built around a tonic, uh, which I'll use in scare quotes because there aren't really, <laughs> there isn't really a tonic, but the kind of main note that it's built around is E-flat also a tie-in to the opening of Wagner's Ring. And the opening of the piece kind of plays around with that E-flat for a long time. And then the B-flat is tuned pure. Um, so that's a, a purely tuned fifth. And by pure, I mean that there's no beating. Equal temperament, which is the standard tuning for a piano, is basically a compromise. It means that all semitones are the same distance apart, but it also means that none of the intervals except for the octave are pure. They all sort of beat, they're detuned a little bit. So this is what Young means by a well-tuned piano. I picked this piece for the length. I also picked it because it's quite meditative and it plays with your sense of time. So I think Wagner is long but would be entertaining because it's drama. But well-tuned piano would be nice to have because I think it can make time pass in, in a different way. It could make time seem suspended, which I think would be useful if you were trapped for eternity on a desert island. <laughs> you said it was 1981? Uh, the recording is 1981. The piece is basically an improvisation. So he started working on it in 1964 and never really considers it 
complete. Mm-hmm. There's some notation, which of course the notation doesn't look like it's going to sound because the piano has been retuned. There are different sections to it, but it's different every time he does it. So this Gramavision recording would be kind of one iteration of the well-tuned piano. Also, Young kept the, the his actual tuning a secret for many years. Until I oh, let's say it was late '80s or maybe like 1990. Um, another composer, Kyle Gann, who's also written a number of really nice books about music. Uh, Kyle Gann got the Gramavision recording and then a tunable synthesizer and basically figured out the tuning. And with Young's permission, published an article in Perspectives of New Music saying, "Here's the tuning." But again, it's a piece that's particular to Lamont Young. And if you saw him perform it, it would also go along with a colored light display by his partner, Marion Zazila, called the Magenta Lights, which of course you wouldn't have on your desert island, but I still think the recording would be nice. Okay, and now, Sun Ra. Is this also an E-flat? <laughs> it is not an E-flat, I don't think. Um, so this is music that I picked because it's otherworldly not wanting to be reminded of the real world or civilization. So this is a free jazz album. It's actually in three volumes. Um, I have a little box set here that has some sort of lost tapes. So again, in the name of maximizing time, I'm going to call the three volumes all one work. This is Sun Ra, who's a, a keyboard player and band leader who played in a number of styles, but who um, also played in the free jazz or sometimes called out jazz style. He was also a poet and a seer who often thought of himself as communicating with other times and planets. These sort of science fiction ideas of kind of time and space travel often occur in his poetry or the stagecraft that he did with his band. This is Um, the beginning of Afrofuturism, right? Yeah. Yeah. So this is an aesthetic that is taken up by a number of different artists. Um, So probably more familiarly, George Clinton or Lee Scratch Perry, the dub reggae producer is another um, figure. This is artists in the African diaspora using imagery of ships or travel or arcs. Um, Sun Ra's band was called the Orchestra with an A-R, which is also uh, Ra spelled backwards. Um, they incorporated this kind of science fiction imagery with imagery of the Middle Passage and making it into something that will transport people out of oppression rather than taking them into it. Again, you know, I'm not sure how much of that would sort of fall away for me if I were on my desert island, but I think that idea of transport, even if it's in one's mind to a different time or place, would be wonderful. Also, this particular record, I won't say it's my favorite Sun Ra record because that's a high bar, but this particular record, it's extensive and it also has a lot of different moods on it. The opening track is very strange. Most of the moods on the album are very strange. It can have some kind of delicate percussion that is suddenly interrupted by the low brass in the ensemble. It's all pretty abstract. There's one track called Dancing in the Sun, which I think would be really great on a desert island. And that track actually really swings, even though it's experimental and free. When did you first hear Sun Ra? Oh, a good question. Um, it must have been, so after I graduated from college, I lived in upstate New York for a couple of years. I worked at a used bookstore that also had a record store. 
and that was when I started collecting vinyl seriously. And the proprietor of that record store, which was called The Bop Shop in Rochester, Tom Cohn, he loved avant-garde jazz. Um, and so I think that must have been where I heard most of that music, because I don't, I don't think that's something that I was exposed to a whole lot in college. So what's next for you? What, what are you working on right now? What's your mm-hmm. project? I actually have a deadline this week. <laughs> um, I'm working on a contribution to an edited collection about the Velvet Underground, mm-hmm. and I'm writing a chapter about post-Velvet Underground record by two of the main members of the band, John Cale and Lou Reed. In the late 1980s, they did a tribute to Andy Warhol, who had been their mentor and had produced their first record and designed the album cover art for their first record in the 1960s. Warhol died very suddenly from complications from gallbladder surgery in 1987, and John Cale and Lou Reed had been estranged for many years, met at his memorial service, and eventually decided to do a memorial album for him. The album is called Songs for Drella. Uh, Drella was a nickname uh, for Warhol. It's a portmanteau of Dracula and Cinderella, a nickname that Warhol didn't like very much by most accounts. And it basically tells Warhol's life story in a series of 15 songs. And I'm interested in the idea of it as a musical portrait inspired by Warhol as the kind of great portrait artist of the 20th century who worked in portraiture with the silk screens, in film with his screen tests. Uh, That's how he made most of his money, um, was as a kind of portrait artist for hire. So I'm interested in how uh, music can function as a medium for portraiture, even though with music we don't have a, a visual likeness of the person. So that's what I'm working on this week. What about next semester? Any special classes or anything? It is popular music in the U.S. and research methods, and those are always special classes every semester. All right, and finally, I always allow my castaways to take one book with them. Excluding, these are the rules, I didn't make these up, excluding the Bible and the complete works of Shakespeare. Oh, that's hard. Robinson Crusoe. No, (laughs) that's two on the nose. (laughs) Survival guy. (laughs) (laughs) Um... Some Jack London. (laughs) (laughs) Mm. One book on the desert island. Okay. I'm sure everyone will say this, but Lord of the Rings. I mean, it's got length. It's fantastic. It's another world. And then there's the connection with the ring cycle, too. That's true. Yeah, Yeah, maybe that's... Well, wait a minute. See, if I already had the ring, then maybe I don't want Lord of the Rings. We could write a research paper comparing and contrasting. Oh, it could be a whole class. You bring in Led Zeppelin. (laughs) You know what? I might take Yoko Ono Grapefruit because it has instructions. So it would be activities. Each page has kind of a little instruction of an activity to perform. And some of them are things that you could really do. So like light a match and watch until it goes out. And that's like a little artwork Mm -hmm. that you have with yourself. But then some of them are like take a bucket and look at the reflection of the moon in the water and you try to catch the moon in your bucket. Wonderful little like thought experiments like that. Yeah, it sounds very fluxus. Yes, which I think that as a scholar of experimental music that that's what I would want, but you know, maybe I would really just want to read Lord of the Rings again. (laughs) 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 All right, well, thank you so much for letting me uh, cast you away in a desert island. Awesome, it was fun. 
You've been listening to Notes from the Conservatory from the Bob Cole Conservatory of Music at California State University, Long Beach. Thanks for listening.